Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to welcome back Dr. Yanya Lalich to the show. It's been about, what, two years since we talked last time, so it's been a long time. I can't believe it's been that long. Really? Has it been that long? Wow. It's been that long. I'm so interested to tap into your expertise as a sociologist, as a cult expert. I wanted to talk to you about the cult of Nexium and Keith Raniere, because that's been in the news lately, and I know you were involved to some extent leading mm-hmm. up to the trial. What was your actual role in that? Well, I was actually being filmed for the two documentaries that have come out, um, The Vow and Seduced. Uh, so I was with those teams. I had, I, I had, you know, been talking with people before that. Once the story really broke with Sarah Edmondson, that front page New York Times mm-hmm. picture of her, of her brand. Uh, so, you know, I was aware of, of Nexium certainly, but once the documentaries got a hold of me, <laughs> then I was brought out to New York to observe the trial. I wasn't part of the trial, but was there as an observer, which was an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, at that time, I met a lot of the survivors. The vow had put us up in an Airbnb, so I was staying with five or six of the women who had been in the vow and we spent, I mean, I'm sorry, who had been in Nexium and mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time talking and crying and laughing and them sharing their stories with me. And then mm-hmm. I, you know, I've continued to be in touch with quite a few of them since then. I'm sure that's a helpful resource for them because we watched the vow. It was on here in the UK about probably two months ago. I haven't seen Seduced, but I've just come across their website today when I was doing some research and reading in preparation for talking to you. I think it might be on Amazon or Netflix, one of those. It's on Netflix now. It's excellent. It's Mm -hmm. very, very good. Yeah. And I've seen the the Lost Women of Nexium, Mm -hmm. which is another little one one off documentary, which is another, I guess that's another facet that's opening up. There are at least four women, I think, whose deaths are suspicious to say the least that are associated with Nexium and Keith Raniere. So who knows if that's going to lead anywhere as well. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That story is not going to go away for a while. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So you were saying before we hit record during the trial, they didn't go down the cult route, even though this is clearly a cult. I think it meets all the sociological and cult expert, you know, markers of cults. Why didn't they go that route? And instead they kind of went down the legal line, didn't they? Yes. Well, you know, it's very difficult to use cult terminology and ideas in trials, uh, especially jury trials, because most people don't really get it. The courts are afraid of anything that has anything to do with religion uh, in our country, even though Nexium wasn't a religion. But I think the, the prosecutors made a very smart move in going after the coercive influence and control. And, you know, they had so much evidence about the, the seven different federal charges that they brought against him that there, there was really no need to, to use the cult, the cult mm-hmm. aspect of it. 
So can we talk about Keith Raniere a little bit? Here's a guy who's just a classic cult leader. He, right. Again, he hits all the markers, doesn't he? What do we know about Keith Raniere? Because in my research of him, looking at his backstory, one thing that keeps popping up is he's constantly involved in multi-level marketing businesses. He started off, I guess he was in Amway just as a salesperson years right. ago, back in the 80s. Then he started up a couple of his own MLMs, which were proven to be basically pyramid schemes. So right. Nexium kind of leads into that logical succession. What does that tell us about his own sort of personality profile? Well, I think it's it's obvious that Ranieri was just a straight out con artist and a very a very sadistic narcissist. When you see the things that that happened in Nexium over the years, you know he was clearly out for himself, out to to have lots of money, and I think. What the way Nexium unfolded and and then the the sort of secret cult within the cult could not have happened without his co-conspirator Nancy Salzman. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think she was really the brains behind how it got structured, how people got recruited, how they got manipulated, and so they were a they were a vicious team <laughs> for mm-hmm. sure. But yeah, in the vow, she comes across as being this very caring, almost like a psychologist or a therapist. And of course, he does too. In the beginning, it's a very interesting way they frame the documentary because you think, okay, a lot of the stuff he's saying seems to make sense. And she's leading these seminars all over the country and they seem to help people. And it was billed yeah. as like a self-help thing, wasn't it? Right. Well, you know, that's the thing with cults. If, 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 if they showed the true selves from the beginning, no one would join, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important for them to have, first of all, a message that's going to resonate with some popular, some segment of the population. And of course, in their case, it was, you know, let's improve your acting skills, um, mm. you know, and that's why they, they recruited so much from within those circles as a self-improvement organization. Um, they had a lot of big name people, which lent them legitimacy. And then they were able to, um, you know, charge a lot of money for these workshops and seminars and draw more and more people in. So, it was a very smart way to set it up. Yeah. And so Keith, you know, Keith sort of got what he wanted for a number of years with that. He had the Bronfman sisters as well, which was a yeah. huge chunk of money. They had these Seagram's heiresses that were worth you know, how many tens of millions of dollars. Oh, absolutely. And they, I mean, they funded so much of it and especially Claire. Mm-hmm. And of course, their money was used to essentially terrorize any of the people who left the cult and spoke out. And so, you know, they just would lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit to try to, you know, shut people up. And yeah, so the way Claire, Claire in particular, but both of them uh, used that family money was, was just pathetic. And then of course, I think you mentioned Allison Mack. She's another big name that comes out of all the trials. I think they're, they're awaiting sentencing as right. I understand it now. It probably right. delayed due to COVID and all the rest of it. Yeah, well, even even Ranieri's was delayed. And then finally, the judge said, COVID or no, we're going to finally have the sentencing. And mm-hmm. Claire got sentenced. But uh, Nancy Salzman, her daughter, Lauren, and Allison Mack are still awaiting sentencing. Yeah, so you get all these people caught up in this dragnet now. They're being culpable for their part in it. This is yeah. so fascinating. So it looks like him and Nancy Salzman, they started this thing called ESP, which was right. Executive Success Program. I think it was in mm-hmm. 1988 or 98. And then it, they rebranded as Nexium. And it's amazing right. going back to this thing on the vow, you think, okay, here's this seminar, you go in for a weekend, 
And it's it, like you said, it costs a lot of money. And I wondered if even the fact that it, it was a, a huge price to pay financially, that was part of the draw too. This thing is worth a lot of money. You need to sacrifice in order to get in here. This is something right. worth a lot of your time and effort and energy. And that's what gets people sucked in. Right. And that's what keeps people in. Because when you've made that kind of investment, you don't want to say, mm. oh my God, I made a mistake. You know, so people yeah. got in deeper and deeper and deeper and spent more and more and more money and time and recruiting their friends. And so then you get kind of trapped in this thing like, oh my God, you know, and of mm -hmm. course, after a while, you don't even have time to think about it. People mm -hmm. work very hard. You know, a lot of slave labor went on there, uh, labor trafficking. And so, uh, yeah, that was one of, one of the appeals. You know, it, it's something seems very special if it costs a lot of money. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that was part of the draw. Yeah, if it was just a few hundred dollars, it might not have been so, but it was $7,500 or something for a, yeah. a, a, a weekend course. That's a lot of money. And right. yeah, it's this executive success program. It's, right. it's appealing right. to these people. And I was reading a lot of the stories on the Seduce documentary website, really fascinating by some of the women who were in Nexium. And mm -hmm. they all agree. They say that the cult didn't recruit sort of, quote, vulnerable people, the typical sort of profile that you might think, oh, that's what a person who joins a cult. They're talking about people who are bright, well-educated, motivated. They've got networks. And that was the whole point was that right. once they got in, as you say, it was all about, well, you need to bring your friends and family into this thing too. And so they wanted people who were successful and connected to exploit their networks. Yeah. I mean, and that's actually true for most cults. I mean, cults look mm -hmm. for what's called A-type personalities. You know, they want people who can perform for the group, can run the businesses, can bring in their contacts, can further lens legitimacy. I mean, cults don't want stupid, crazy, lazy people, which I think is kind of one of the myths about who joins cults. You mm -hmm. know, they don't want you to be a problem. You're there to take care of the cult. The cult's not there to take care of you. So of course, and certainly if you have money, that's another plus. So that, that's who cults really look at. And in the case of Nexium, you know, they were very successful in, in getting these people to recruit within their rather elite circles of friends who brought in more money and more big names. And, and it went on from there. Well, they had connections with the former president of Mexico, I think, too. It's like Scientology. That's what I was going to say. One thing that struck me as I was researching Nexium, to me, there's a lot of parallels and overlap between Scientology. You've got L. Ron Hubbard, Keith Renere, kind of these guys who are billed as these geniuses. They're so, so incredibly smart and intelligent. They've actually invented a, a new system of right. mental health <laughs> and all the rest of it. You know, they've got Scientology and he's got Nexium. And it's, it seems so attractive that it pulls people in and they love the celebrity factor, you know, Scientology, they've got Tom Cruise, John Travolta, they had all these, you know, famous celebrities, they've got Allison Mack and the Bronfman sisters. So there's something to that, isn't there, where there's, a, it seems like there's a lot of parallels between Nexium and Scientology. Yeah, I mean, certainly even some of the language they, mm -hmm. they took from Scientology. But again, I think it shows the parallels that you do find across cults, you know, that they they use a lot of the same types of techniques and, and influence mechanisms. They may actually manifest in a slightly different way, but, you know, we see those parallels across all cults. Of course, mm -hmm. in, in, the, in those two cases, you know, those were very sort of high level, uh, well-known, eventually Nexium became well-known because of the tragedy of the branding but mm. yeah so they they uh 
they were able to do that. And the, the Mexican connection was very important for them. It was a way for them to launder money. They had a huge following in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, brought people illegally over the border, the girls, uh, for him to exploit. Um, they have families who some some of whom are still, you know, there's still a big chunk of followers in Mexico who still mm-hmm. carry on and still believe in, in Ranieri. Just like L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. Ranieri's in prison right now and L. Ron Hubbard's going to come back from the dead. There's still people who believe that LRH is going to come back from the dead. Yeah, well, there's still people who believe David Koresh is going to come back, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and there's still followers of Heaven's Gate and, you know, Marshall Applewhite and, and Nettles. So, you know, sometimes those beliefs are just hard to crack. One of the things that struck me about the parallels between Nexium and Scientology was both systems have this really genius mechanism, like we were talking about, for not only drawing people in initially, but then they get them on this sort of path. And in, in Scientology, you've got the bridge. You've got to keep going up the levels to get to the point where you're supposedly clear and they charge you more and more money. In Nexium, it seemed like they had this system of colored scarves where it was all the sashes. Yeah, and it was your ranking based on how far you'd progressed. And mm-hmm. as you get into it, you're taking these courses and you've got to pay more money. And then eventually you're working for free because you can't afford to pay for it. And they keep you so busy that you get worn down and all the rest of it. This is just classic cult psychology, it seems like. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. They had a very tightly controlled system that people got enmeshed in. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, then they, you know, they, they would encourage certain people to move to Albany, especially the, the thin blondes, <laughs> you know, if then if yeah. they weren't thin enough, they put them on that insane diet of 500 calories a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was gruesome. During the trial, the chiropractor that Ranieri went to and that then many of his followers were sent to, you know, he spoke about how malnourished the women were mm-hmm. um, and how troubled he was by that. Well, and I, I read in some of those stories, I know India Oxenberg, she was one of the women who was attracted into it at about 19, very, very young. And very I think young. her mom was trying to get her out for a long time. But yeah. she talks about in the account on the seduced website, she talks about even now she's come out of it. She's still got physical problems. She was in this DOS organization, which is, you've alluded to that. It's kind of the inner circle of the really serious ones who were abused by Keith Ranieri, but they were put on a, basically a starvation diet and she's still struggling physically as well as obviously emotionally from being in this really strict regimen. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like she had to learn how to eat all over again, Mm -hmm. you know? So luckily her, her fiance was a chef and was very good at helping her with that. But yeah, the Seduce documentary is really wonderful, and I, I encourage people to look at it. That's the interesting part about it. You you talk about in your book, Take Back Your Life, you say cult leaders, they basically are in it for one of one, two, or three, or all three things, sex, money, and power. Exactly. And it seems like here's Ranieri, again, a classic cult leader. He's in it for all three of those. He, he was yeah. worshipped by his followers. I mean, you watch that documentary, The Vow. One thing that's striking about that is as he's pontificating about his amazing philosophies on life or whatever, these people, they've got that classic cult stare. And it's just this vacant, worshipful stare. And what was it about him that, why did he have such power, such thrall over these people? What is that? I, you know, I remember at the trial one, the first time, the first day I was there when he came walking out and I thought, 
that little pudgy little nebbishy guy that's who mm. everybody was enthralled with that's what know? all the fuss is about like, what this you know, guy but, really <laughs> yeah and you could say the same about the leader of the cult i was in she was this you know overweight frumpy dirty blondish hair mm-hmm. wearing moo's. you know it's like what but yeah. you know i think that that really helps explain this whole concept of charisma because charisma is really a social relationship. It's not something, you know, people think charisma is something that is inherent in that particular individual, but what it really is, is a social relationship. It's how you respond to that person, you know, and that's why we say charisma is in the eye of the beholder because somebody you think is a charismatic individual, I might think, oh my God, you know, and this is, this is what we see with Ranieri, right? It's like, how, how did he do it? But mm-hmm. once you give that person that power over you, that sets up an imbalanced power relationship, right? And so I guess in the end, it doesn't really matter what they look like. It's that you, you have this kind of visceral emotional response to that person and and they could be saying absolute nonsense which often they are and to you it just sounds like you know these incredible words of wisdom so it's it's a very Mm. very tricky complex relationship Mm -hmm. you can't always quantify exactly what it is it's not a one one size fits all sort of thing is it When we return from the break, we're going to get even more into the cult tactics, the influence mechanisms of how not only Nexium itself worked as a group with undue influence, but we're going to talk about cults in general, how the psychology, how the tactic actually works, and also helpful resources for rebuilding your life on the back end. If, like me and so many others, you've walked away from controlling religious groups, any group with undue influence, it doesn't have to be a religious thing. There could be business cults, there could be therapy cults, there could be all sorts of cults, political cults, as we've just seen with the last four years of Donald Trump and even still going on. So there's a lot of resources. We're going to get into that in the second half of the show. So I think that's going to be helpful for you if you're in the process of rebuilding your life, rebuilding your identity post-religion, post-cults, any group with undue influence, really, if you've walked away from that and you're looking to put your life back together. But before we get into the second half, I wanted to mention really quickly a huge thank you to the latest supporters of this show on Patreon. I want to give a thank you to Ryan Kerwin-Walker, Kelly Clampett and Chrissy Florence. Thank you so much for being supporters of this show on Patreon. And in fact, speaking of Patreon, we are now starting to do patrons-only Zoom calls. We're having our first one this month in February on the 7th. So when this episode drops, that call will have already be done, but we're going to be doing more. We'll do one every month. And this is in addition to our MindShift Zoom calls that we do every month. We've got two scheduled in the month of February, as well as the patrons only call. This month, we've got Dean Crosets of the People I Meet podcast, as well as Seven, who's the rapper out of Jacksonville, Florida. So really looking forward to both of those calls this month. And then in March, we've got Thomas Hanna, who's coming out. Actually, the episode with him is coming out next week. 
He's an ex-pastor who is now a therapist out of Tampa Bay, Florida. So he's going to drop in. And at some point, we're looking to have Frank Schaefer come back in. We're going to be discussing a new book that he's working on that's just about to come out. So that's going to be coming up as well in the next few months. So I'm really excited about having Frank back in. And in fact, speaking of Frank Schaefer, I just had a conversation with him the other day. So this is going to be an episode that's coming out very soon in my new series, Profiles of the Christian Right. We went back and looked at some of the involvement that Frank and his famous dad, Francis Schaefer, had with people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson back in the 1970s and the early 1980s. And of course, they were absolutely instrumental in helping form what is now the Christian right, which essentially has become the base of Donald Trump, that sort of evangelical, white, rabidly loyal, cult-like following that Donald Trump had and still has, even now that he's left office. So that episode with Frank Schaefer is coming out very soon. And while I'm thinking of Jerry Falwell Sr., I'm going to be doing a complete standalone episode just on him. I've been doing a tremendous amount of research. And so that episode is another one that's going to be coming out in my Profiles of the Christian Right series. There's really cool stuff coming down the pipeline. So look for the episodes with Frank Schaefer as well as Thomas Hanna coming out very soon. I've also been talking to some other people. I've got episodes already done. I've talked to Dr. Terry Daniel. We did a really interesting discussion about death and mental health and religion. That's going to be coming out as well. I've also been in conversations with Ann Jiska and Josiah Meyer of the Seeking Health podcast. I was on their show a while ago, and so I'm going to have them on Mindship Podcast. So really good episodes coming up. Also, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Mindship Podcast YouTube channel. Every month, I'm doing conversations with Peter Montgomery from the Right Wing Watch. We have a call scheduled for the middle of February, so that's going to be going straight up to YouTube. We're going to be looking at some of the issues on the Christian right, monitoring what's going on in the wake of the post-Trump evangelical charismatic prophecies, some of the seriously right-wing nuts that are out there. So this is something we do every month. So once again, I'm looking forward to talking with Peter in a few weeks here. All right, let's get back into the chat with Yanya Lalich. We're going to continue looking at not only, the, as I say, the cult psychology of Nexium. How did it actually work? What were the tactics? What were the influence mechanisms that Keith Raniere and his closest loyal lieutenants and sycophants used to control and coerce the followers within the cult? But then we're going to get into explaining how cults generally work and then also looking at resources for helping to rebuild and reconstruct your life, as I say, post-cults, post-religions, post-groups with undue influence. So let's get back into the second half of the chat with Dr. Yanya Lava. Well, the interesting thing too, I remember asking you this in our last interview a couple of years ago, but one thing I'm just absolutely fascinated by, and I can't, I still can't give my, you answered the question, but <laughs> I still can't get my head around it. This idea that in the classic cult, you've got this sort of pyramidal structure, you know, the classic cult structure, the leader at the top, and then usually him, I should say, mostly are men, but around him are this kind of close group of lieutenants or whatever you want to call it. And then below that, you've got the kind of hangers on and it goes down from there. So you've got a person like Allison Mack. She's one of the close lieutenants, one of the closest ones. What's her role in supplying women to Keith Raniere and helping to be a part of the abuse of this group called DOS, which was like a, a closed, it's almost like a sex slave group 
Why, why would she do that as a woman herself? That's what I can't understand. Well, I think, you know, when you think back on that little the video that I probably so many people have seen of, of Allison Mack sitting and listening to Keith, you know, and she's mm-hmm. just looking at him like, it's I mean, worshiping it's, him. it's the saddest thing you could ever see. So she, she was completely in thrall of him. She saw him as a god. And she was one of his biggest enablers uh, in the end. Um, you know, they had a relationship and she would, she would do anything for him. It was obvious. And mm-hmm. so that's how Das got set up where, you know, she brought in other women. The other women, they were then told to bring in other women. They were kept there because of the collateral they gave and they were afraid that their collateral would be released. You know, so it was essentially a blackmail situation. And it just got at least that group of, of women, you know, in deeper and deeper and deeper. And once you start committing those really heinous acts, those things you, you probably never would have done in your ordinary life, unless you too are a psychopath, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just harder to even break away from that because mm-hmm. you, you, you've absolutely lost your ability to think in your own self-interest, right? You're only mm-hmm. thinking in the interest of the cult leader. It seems like, as you mentioned, there's that whole system of collateral. They had such incredible control over this group of women that they were sucked into the point where they find themselves, I wouldn't say they were voluntarily letting themselves be branded, but I mean, it's to the point where it's like, listen, you're going you're gonna to prove your loyalty to Keith. You're gonna, this is what you need to do. And they went and did it as much as it was obviously just excruciatingly painful. But they were that far into it, as you say. I still can't get my head around that even. Well, you know, that's what I, that, that's what I describe in my book, Bounded Choice. You know, mm-hmm. that once people internalize the ideology, the beliefs of the cult, and the total adoration and devotion to the cult leader and what the cult leader wants, once you've internalized all that, you, you are, in a sense, like a tiny little microcosm of the cult itself, right? Mm-hmm. And you're in what I call a bounded reality. You're in this closed reality that has absolutely enveloped you into that system. And then you reach a state of mind that I call bounded choice, which means that you have decisions to make. You're faced with choices, but you know exactly the decision you need to make in order to stay in the good graces of the group or the leader, right? And so in essence, Yes, in a sense, you have free will. There's nobody literally holding a gun to your head, but your free will has been altered by the Mm -hmm. will of the leader. And so that's when people get into this situation where they're doing things that, as I was saying earlier, they wouldn't normally do Mm -hmm. if they hadn't been part of that incredibly closed system. Mm -hmm. Your whole value system, your morals, everything's been altered Mm -hmm. by the will of the leader. And it seemed like it takes a long time to get to that stage. It's not you don't go in there and then the next day <laughs> supplying women to Keith Renere so he can no. sexually abuse them and get them branded. This is something I found fascinating. I don't know if you read Michael Cohen's book, Disloyal, when he talks about his time working for Donald Trump, but he describes that kind of the same psychology where over the years he kept making small compromises mm-hmm. and he kept saying to himself deep down inside, this isn't who I am. But mm-hmm. the money was good and there was this kind of system of patronage and you're close to this guy and he's a charismatic figure. He's obviously worth a lot of money. You can make a lot of money just being around him and getting in on certain deals. And over the years, he said, I found myself 
you know, getting further and further and further away from the person I knew I was. And he kept talking about his wife and children were saying, dad, this isn't you. We don't even know who you've become. And he, he had altered that much where he was doing horrible, despicable things for Trump, even though he knew deep down inside it was wrong. Yeah. Well, that's why I think it's important if you have someone who's in a cult, you know, a family member or a friend, you know, it's important to not give up on them because people do have doubts and people do have hesitations. And obviously they can't act on those things or express those things because they're in that closed environment. They're essentially psychologically trapped and perhaps emotionally trapped. But all these little doubts and hesitations kind of get shoved in the back of your head, right? And they're on this shelf. And if you as a friend or someone who knows someone like that can keep planting little seeds that get added to that shelf, you know, and hopefully those seeds will grow until one day the shelf becomes too heavy and breaks. Mm -hmm. And then that person can actually say to themselves, this is wrong and I've got to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And of course, then that's the beginning of a whole new phase of finding your way out. But Mm -hmm. if if we can feed people those seeds, that's the best thing we can do to to try Mm -hmm. to help disengage them from from some kind of cultic behavior, Mm -hmm. cultic situation. Is it a case where one psychological sort of cognitive dissonance eventually just gets too much? There's too much disconfirming evidence and you can't double down I know a lot of people do, though. They just keep doubling down and tripling down and quadrupling down, and they never, ever get out. They, whatever the system is, that shelf never breaks. They just keep propping it up. Yes, that can happen to some, some people never, never let go. But, you know, mm-hmm. I'm co-facilitating a support group on Zoom for the past year uh, with a therapist friend, and it's for survivors of cults or abusive relationships. And we have people from around the world, actually, not just in the States, men and women. And we have people who, you know, who left their cult after 20, 30 years of being in it. And we also have people who've been out for maybe 10 or more years, but who never really dealt with the after effects. And they're just kind of dealing with it now. But I've met any number of people who've been in cults for decades who do eventually leave. And, mm. and so that's why I say never give up. Mm. <laughs> never give up on those folks. It's hard <laughs> when you get, especially if you got family members and close friends and loved ones that you can't talk to them, you can't have a discussion. Well, I know another thing you talk about this, uh, this idea of what you call self-sealing systems Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that work? Can you describe how that would have worked, let's say, in the case of a Nexium type of cult? What exactly is that about? What I describe as the self-sealing system is essentially this, this world that's closed in on itself, you know, that you're part of this altered reality. Mm-hmm. So you've got, first of all, of course, you've got the leader who uh, demands all devotion and all loyalty, no matter what, and demands blind followership, in essence. Then you have the indoctrination program, which is, is actually in a way part of that belief system that you're being told by the leader that he or she can take you to some salvation, whatever that might be, whether it's mm-hmm. political or financial or weight loss or whatever, right? But they're the only one who can take you there. But in order to go there, you have to change, you have to transform yourself. And so that's what the indoctrination program is all about, is getting you to change. So you have those two things coupled with then within the system of the cult, you have what I call systems of influence and systems of control. And these are mechanisms or or techniques that interlock 
You know, so the controls are the more overt rules and regulations, things you have to abide by, you know, whether it's how you dress or how many babies to have or whatever. But the influences are actually, in many ways, the much more powerful ones that lock you in. You know, that's where we see the importance of peer pressure, which I think isn't really talked about enough. Um, because we respond to our peers almost more than anything else, right? So that's why these cults are groups, right? Because it's the peer pressure that that helps keep people in. Uh, so all of those other social psychological influences, the fear, the guilt, the shame, you know, all of those things. So all, you've got these four components that lock together that create this self-sealing system. And of course, we, you know, we saw that very well with Nexium. You've got Ranieri, the leader who demands mm -hmm. everything. You have the belief system that he's the only one who can bring you this enlightenment, right? And then you had the various ways that they were controlled and influenced. So, and once you're caught up in that, it's really difficult for people to leave or think, even think about leaving. You get to the point where you can't even imagine life outside the group. Well, and again, there's another parallel, I think, in what you just described between Nexium and Scientology, isn't there, is part of the self-sealing system where a person who does leave is shunned or labeled a suppressive person or whatever you want to call that person. And right. then in the case of both cults, they've spent huge sums of money going after these people, which, I mean, Scientology is infamous for doing right. that dirty tricks and all the rest of it. And so did Nexium, and they would go after journalists and bloggers and reporters, anyone who spoke bad about the group, they would right. sick their attorneys on them and investigate them. And right. so you see that people inside the group must be thinking, I certainly don't want to leave this thing. If that's exactly. the example, that right. must be part of the ceiling of the system, isn't it? Exactly. It's the fear. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. fear of what's going to happen if I go out there into the, into the quote, regular world, right? It's the fear of that, like what the cult could bring upon you. And it's also the fear of like, well, maybe I'm wrong. You know, why am I the only one thinking this? I better stay here because this is safe and this is what I know. Mm -hmm. You know, God knows what, what can happen to me out there, you know? So yeah, that, that's definitely part of what keeps people closed in. Yeah, the shunning or what Lifted calls the dispensing of existence. You leave exactly. the group and you're a non-person exactly. now. Exactly. We will never speak to you again. We will cut you off and right. perhaps yeah. pursue legal you know, avenues against you. And you already can't afford it because you don't have any money anyway. <laughs> That's part money. of the and, thing, and, isn't it? And you, and you may not know you have a support system. I mean, but mm -hmm. usually after a period of time in a group, you, you don't have any friends left who aren't part of the group. And you may have cut off your family. You know, in my case, when I was in my group, you know, both my parents died while I was in the group. I had no other friends who were, and I was like, well, where, where in the world am I going to go? You know, what, what mm -hmm. can I do? Uh, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a car that I thought would go 10 miles, you know? So all of those things are factors in keeping people kind of paralyzed, mm -hmm. sort of psychologically paralyzed, un mm -hmm. unable to go through that door. And you become so dependent in a case, even financially, as you say, on the cult. If you're working 24-7 almost, you're, right. they're working you to death, literally, to keep yeah. you so busy, keep you so exhausted, which is another right. classic cult tactic, yeah. isn't it? Then you can't think. Yeah. You're no time to think. You can't think straight. Exactly. Yeah. So you're financially dependent. You're emotionally dependent. If you right. do think of leaving, where are you going to go? You've got no resources. You have no career you might not have any marketable skills to get a job. What are you going to do? So it's better to just stay in the self-sealing system. Right. Yet it's wearing you down. It's got to contribute to mental health disorders yeah. of every stripe. 
Right. You know, oh, surely. I, mean, I can say from my own experience, for the last five years of my time in my group, I used to wish every day that I would get killed in a car accident because I couldn't figure out how to leave. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I, I, I didn't think I should commit suicide. I guess that was just a no-no for me. And I, I literally every day would wish I would just get killed in a car accident because it was the only way I could see to get out. So you can imagine, you know, you've got thousands of people around the country, around the world who are in cults, who are probably also in that frame of mind where you just feel lost and desperate. Yeah, what a horrible place to be. Yeah. Seemingly no way out. Well, here right. we are then at the end, is it, or is it the end of this thing? Okay, so Keith Ranieri was sentenced to 120 years at the <laughs> end of 2020, October 2020. And another weird parallel, it reminded me of the Charles Manson trial. He had people actually in the group that were singing and dancing outside of his prison cell. <laughs> I mean, that reminds me of the Manson girls in the Manson right. family shaving their heads and just swearing their undying loyalty to Charles Manson. That, yeah. And he's still running it from his prison cell. Yeah, well, hopefully now, uh, because I believe they've said he can have no contact uh, with anyone associated, you know, formerly associated with Nexium. I'm hoping that I, I feel I do feel bad for those people. It's just it's the saddest thing when you see them and they, you know, put on put videos on and try to, you know, get people to understand their position. And I think that what I'm hoping is that once once they no longer have any contact with him, that some of them at least will find a way to break away. We'll kind of say, okay, this is enough. I've, I've got to get back to my life. Mm -hmm. um, because he, he can't any longer be directing them. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's a good chunk of people who are still believers. And, and that's always sad to see. Mm. It reminds me too of the Warren Jeffs saga, yes, you know, the definitely. FLDS. He's the guy who's in prison, yet he's still running the cult from his well, prison cell. He's not anymore because he's in solitary confinement. Oh, right. Canada. I didn't know that. Last yeah. thing I heard, he was still, you know, delivering grandiose pronouncements and no, he, he all the rest of it. He can't do that anymore. But, you know, he still has hundreds of loyal followers oh, sure. who, who believe the whole thing. You know, like with Ranieri, they believe that all the charges against him are, are false, you know, and they absolutely still see him as their messiah. Yeah. So, and he maintains he did nothing wrong. No, oh, yeah. He has no remorse, no regrets, because of course he did nothing wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so well, that's they never the question. Do wrong, do they? <laughs> <laughs> they never do. That's the joy of being a narcissistic cult leader. <laughs> All right. Yes. I think we just had one leave um, Office of Presidents uh, of the United yes, States. Yes, the yes. ultimate personality cult. This is a question then as we go. How can people find you? You have amazing resources, I know. What's the best way to get a hold of those resources if you're looking to recover from a cult or high control group with undue influence? Well, there are two books. One is Take Back Your Life, Recovering from Cults and Abusive Relationships, which uh, is on Amazon and elsewhere, I'm sure. And, mm -hmm. and right now we're getting it into audio form, which is great. And actually Sarah Edmondson, who was in Nexium, is doing the narration. So it's, mm. a, it's a wonderful combination. Wow. Good connection. Um, the other good book for people is Escaping Utopia, Growing Up in a Cult, Getting Out and Starting Over. So for those who were born or raised in a cult, that's an excellent book. Um, 
where I interviewed 65 individuals who were born or raised in a cult, and it shares their stories and the things that worked for them and didn't work for them in their recovery. Mm. And then my website, which is cultresearch.org, uh, there are a lot of materials there, different you know checklists, past interviews that I've done, all kinds of resources. And there is a way to uh, message me from that website uh, that, that will get to me. So if people had something in particular they want to tell me about, that's a way to reach me. Mm. I think those are probably the three main resources. And of course, my other book, Bounded Choice, which is published by University of California Press, it's more theoretical, um, discussing my analysis of two different groups, uh, the one I was in and Heaven's Gate. And so that's also a good read. Mm -hmm. I know speaking personally, I've read Take Back Your Life. I found it to be very, very helpful because I came out of the fundamentalist Bible cult background growing up. And so a lot of the things that you talk about in the book were really, they really resonated with me because I, I was like, oh, this is give me the language. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things And when yes. you can actually give language to what happened to you and say, okay, mm -hmm. this is what they did to me. Now I can actually pursue getting help. And I know it's given me a path or an avenue to go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what's so important. So thank you so much for taking the well, time. I hope you. that it won't be another two years. I'd love <laughs> to talk to you about the cult of Trump. There's so many other things I have questions about, but I know we were going to talk about next year. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Well, thanks, Clint. And I'll see you again soon, I'm sure.